So we're in our third week in a series about what the purpose of the church is. Morgan has done the last couple of weeks. You'll remember that last week I posed all of the questions that you wrote down on the cards. And I think we're going to get through some more of them in the next couple weeks. There are three that I'm going to address tonight from the cards that you asked. One, is being a Christian and attending church service related? Two, should the global or local church take precedence? And three, define and explore the word ecclesia and how the purpose of the church has changed over time. Which, of course, we knew there must have been some sneaking around like some seminary students people in here. Um, but actually, very seriously, I am going to tackle that briefly. Not just because it was asked. It was actually a very good question because we need to kind of deal with it tonight a little bit. And here's what I want you to do. Start thinking now. Put your thinking caps on because when I'm done, uh, I want you to start telling me what you think is not right with the state of the church, okay? But before we get there, here's what I want you to do for a moment. I want you to not think of the church as you know it today because part of the issue for us has been that we're confusing a lot of words church. We're thinking about not what is required of Christians or what was suggested to Christians, we're thinking of our experience in a church today. I don't want you to do that right now. We're going to do that in the second half. Right now what I want you to do is come back with me to the time when Paul is writing. So let's go back to the first century for a moment because I really want to nail down what was the intent before we move into did it move off of the intent. I think there's three choices we have when it comes to church. I'd like to narrow it to three choices for the purpose of this exercise. You can either go it alone, be a Lone Ranger Christian. You can say that I'm going to rely on the universal church as my church membership, or you can get involved in a local church. I only see three choices. What choices am I talking about? It's answering that question. What is the relationship between church and being a Christian? It's what we've been struggling with in some way for the last couple weeks. So I really see there's three choices. You can say I'm a Christian, but I have no connection to anyone. I'm going alone. I'm on my own. I'm kind of a Lone Ranger individual. Or you can say, I'm part of the body of Christ, and that's enough. Or you can go the next step and join a local church and be part of a local church. What we're going to do over the next few minutes is look at those three options. Yes? Yeah, I don't know if this would fit into one of those three, so I'm not sure. But like, what about if someone is going to... Like a small group of people, but that wouldn't be classified as like a class previously the church. Like even Exodus, like technically this ministry of the church. People, someone who's just going here, not going to anything else. I'm going to put it into B. Okay. okay, so you're not going it alone. So I guess the way to rephrase your question is actually one of the questions that's asked is, what if I just belong to a ministry? Right, or what if I'm going to a ministry? Some people ask, like, is Exodus a church? Is it enough if I go to Exodus? Was another question that's asked. So it doesn't fit perfectly, but let's put it in B, because I think my view, Exodus is not a church, right? So let's just pretend you were coming here. I would say that you're relying on the church membership, but because it's not a church, you're not really joining a local church, right? So you're somewhere in there, okay? I think most of us would agree that we can take A off the list. There is nothing that I can find anywhere in Scripture that actually doesn't condemn people running on their own. It actually is just the opposite. We're commanded to meet together. We're commanded to be together. So I don't want to waste time shooting down like some sort of straw man that we build up. I don't think that going it alone is the choice. I think what most of us really struggle with are B and C. We struggle with, do I have to go all the way to join a local church? And I'm not even talking about membership now. I'm just saying being in community in a local church, right? We'll get to the membership question later. Do I need to be in community with a local church that I regularly attend where I'm actually part of that body? That's the question I'm coming down to. Or is it enough for me to rely on being in the universal church? Let me tell you some things that the universal church view has going for it. Last week, we started to struggle with this definition of church because some of us were saying, well, Jesus chose the church. And somebody was saying, but which church are you talking about? Which church? Are we talking about the universal church? I'm part of the body of Christ. That's enough. And I can do some of the things that Morgan was prescribing. You remember last week, Morgan was saying churches should do these things. And we were saying, but you could do some of those things without a church. That's true. 
Because Morgan's list of what a church should do wasn't saying that you can't do these things outside of a church. He was just saying if you go to a church, a church should do these things. Some of the things that Morgan was talking about churches that all churches should do, frankly, you could do on your own. I mean, I put up on the screen, you can pray on your own. You don't have to go to a church to pray. You can worship on your own. You don't need to be part of a church to do that. I put down, you can take communion on your own. I mean, it's a little weird <laughs> to do communion by yourself, but because of Philip's clarification, I think it's important to say we do communion here in Exodus, and it's a communal activity. We are following the commandment to remember the Lord and what he did for us. So if you look at the words that says, do this in remembrance of me, we are doing exactly that. Now, there are some churches, of course, that wouldn't recognize what we do here as communion because of some ecclesiastical structure that has to follow, but... Most of the churches we attend are probably non-denominational enough that they think, hey, a group of people can get together and break pieces of bread and the cup, and that's communion because they're remembering the Lord together. So you could do that. I think we could baptize somebody. I've seen groups do that, right? I mean, most of us group in youth groups, they just baptize them in the swimming pool, right? You know, or they do whatever. They go to the beach and they just baptize people. We can do that. Uh, I don't see anything in the scriptures that says that it must be a certain structure that baptizes people, like they're to believe and to be baptized. I think we can serve. We can love one another. I think we can serve others outside of the church. I think we can give to others outside of the church, which was a little bit of what we started talking about last week. I think there's reasons we'd want to give in the church, but that's a different subject. And I think you can do this, is what I'm saying. You don't have to do it within a church. Because I think where the confusion comes is, is it sounds sometimes like we're saying, without the church, you can't do these things. No, you can. And you can say, I'm a part of the body of Christ. And if I choose to do all these things, I can, and I'm no lesser for having done that, which is true. I don't think Jesus is going to come and say to you, like, hey, your service had to be through that local church. There are plenty of people who don't serve through a church, but serve nonetheless. And they do great things through it. And if you were at our house on Wednesday night, we were talking about an example of that, of a local church that was doing through their art project what they were doing in the city. That was part of the example we talked about uh, that Morgan brought to us to look and see how we do it. And we had a really good discussion about what are the elements that are good and what might be missing in that example that he brought to us. You can even preach. I've seen people do that. They're not part of anything. They just go where the movie theater people are, right? And stand there and they do their whole spiel. You can preach even here. Right? I mean, if I'm saying that I, for the sake of this discussion, do not believe that Exodus is a church, we could, if we wanted to, just have preaching. We could have teaching. There are things that you can do. The reason, though, that I am going to say that I don't believe it's enough to camp out in this idea of the universal church is I think there's two problems with it. First, there are some things that do not meet the biblical commandments about church. The universal church doesn't meet. There is no meeting of the universal church. I mean, to say, hey, I'm part of the body of Christ. That's true. You are in Christ. You are part of the body. You are in him. We are all unified together. But what about all the commandments about meeting together? That Paul spends so much of his time, and even the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, is one of the best commandments we have about meet together. Don't stop meeting. Well, how would you do that with the universal church? I know that the answer might be, well, but we're doing it right now. But the intent of the statement was meet together as a church. And you can't meet with the universal church. It doesn't meet. We're to teach and disciple one another to raise up mature believers in the body, to actually disciple people, because they don't meet. There is no teaching going on in the body. Yes? I feel like the that uh, concept relies on how you've interpreted what you set up as B, um, which if I rely on just Christians generally, like the universal church, then yeah, like, I don't meet with all Christians. But like if I'm relying on a group of Christians that just aren't a church, I think that's totally different than B. Uh, at least how you're defining it. Because like sure. they do meet, like they can't have collective giving. Right. They can't. But what I would say to you is if you met with a group of Christians that started doing all these things, they are a church. I mean, you're sliding into becoming a church as you do these more and more and more, right? That's exactly the point, is when a group of Christians start to do that, you think, 
That's exactly what they're doing. Like if you said, hey, I love these people in this room and we're going to meet here every single Sunday night and we're going to fulfill all of these things. You know, I could stand up here and object all day long that we're not a church, but at some point, you know, what we're really doing is now we're debating over like what you call it. But it's different than just saying, it's enough for me to believe in Christ and be part of the body, which it is. It's enough for salvation. It's enough because he loves you. It's enough for a lot of things. It's not enough to meet the commandment that we meet together as a church. So what we would have is a lot of saved, loved, valued Christians who are disobedient in the way they expressed it. Like, so let's single it out. It's not that this is the only area we're disobedient. We're disobedient in the area of sexuality. We're disobedient in the areas of the way that we conduct ourselves. We're disobedient when we don't serve. We're disobedient when we don't give. We're disobedient when we don't go to a local church. Right? And on the grand scheme of things, you might say, well, I'd put that somewhere down here. It's like, okay, but in this series, it's the big one only because that's the series we're in. Right? Like, what's worse, like not loving or not going to church? I'd probably say not loving. Right? But we're all disobedient in some way. And the answer to the direct question that's asked, is it related to my Christianity? Yes, because part of being a disciple of Jesus was his intent that we belong to the church. Do you think that the issue here is the, is the wordage, like the terminology universal church? Do you think that maybe it should just be called universal statement of faith for Christianity? I, I mean, is that what they called it? Like back original text, did they call it the universal church? Give me two minutes and we're going to get to you. That's what the problem is actually, is the way we've defined it. So give me two minutes and we're on our way there. In the book of Acts, there is a commandment, not a commandment, a model of the early church to collectively give and give to church authority who would distribute the funds. You can't do that in a body that doesn't meet, right? You can't do that in a universal sense. Again, if you have a small group of people that are doing all these things, you're becoming a church. This is very important because last week we were a little bit confused about the expression of spiritual gifts. We were saying, well, I can use my spiritual gifts outside the church. It's true. But if you look carefully at what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, a spiritual gift is defined as a gift given by the Spirit for what? For use in the church. Now, it doesn't mean it has no use elsewhere as a secondary use, but its primary use is in the community of the believers in the church. That's where it's supposed to be used. That's why the spiritual gifts are given, and that's why sometimes they're taken away or they change over time because the Spirit has different purposes for the church. So again, I'm not saying if you have a spiritual gift, you can't use it anywhere else. I'm saying that the definition of it as given to us is it's meant to be used in the church. And again, we have a universal church that's not really meeting. It would be impossible to use it in the universal church. So it obviously means the local expression of the universal church. I have one question on the uh, collective giving. So you said that's like a model that's given that did, but not necessarily like a command that this is how giving has to happen. Like that it has to be given to church leaders to then distribute out. Like, so I don't know if like is, I mean like that's how most churches are run that we know about. Uh, and it makes sense in a lot of administrational ways and logistical ways, but I mean, it doesn't seem like, I, I don't know, like a commandment or a necessity of like, of that, that even maybe the best way to do it. Like, because even now, like in a lot of administrative and logistical ways, it's easier to just give online. And then you like go, you know, like I'm not saying, I'm not even suggesting that that's a better way necessarily, but I'm not sure that that should fit into like, well, this is something that needs to happen and like B doesn't do it, but C does. I don't know if it needs to happen. I agree with you that it may be easier for administration a long time ago, but there's another reason that collective giving is so important to the church. The act of surrendering your role and even determining where the gift is given is a surrender of pride to the point where you say, like, this is so not mine that I don't even have to even figure out where it's going. Like, I trust the apostles to distribute as each has need. That was the reason that model was adopted by the churches, by the way. It wasn't because they thought, oh, this is a very convenient way to do it that they read into that, that that is exactly the act of surrender that you would do, almost like leaving your gift on the altar before the Lord, which is like, why would the Lord want you to burn up an animal? Like, what's the point of that, right? It's the same kind of thing of like, here's what I have, here's all the excess, and I lay it at your feet, and I surrender my role from that point, because my role was to make it and to give it to you. Now, of course, that's not the only way to give, but that is the model of the church and how it originally started. And somebody might say, I would, in other words, I would back down and say, sure, if, you, if that was the deal breaker, I'd say, okay. I do believe there's great value in it that our churches don't understand. We think it's because they want to run the buildings and all that, which is true. <laughs> That's probably what most of them are thinking of. 
But when I think of it as why is, this, why is the act of collectively giving so important is because it really properly puts us in the right perspective with our money. And it's just one more discipline you do to show how distant you need to be from the pride that comes with controlling it. Yes? I just want to say, according to that Exodus church, I know you say it's a ministry of New Song Church, but technically we could say that we are tenders of New Song Church through the ministry of Exodus. You could. I, again, that's why I'm saying come with me to the first century because I might be wrong. I might be wrong and you might be right that maybe we are a church and I just don't want to think of it that way. You know, maybe it's my issue that is standing in the way of us saying, yeah, absolutely, in almost every way we could define. I think there's a couple that are missing. But again, like Philip said, do you have to check off every single box? No, I'd say that, are we a youth group? No. Are we just a ministry? We probably left that behind a while ago. We probably left that behind when we started actually doing things like collectively giving, like doing communion, like pressing for those kinds of things, like meeting in a home. And, and we're getting closer to where I think you would say yes. For me, the one down there at the very bottom is, the, the last two are the ones that I think are the most difficult for us, personally. I do believe that there's still a lack of us giving in a spiritual gift way within the body and sharing that with one another. Uh, even sharing resources would be an, another indication, at least, again, we're in the first century, we're not here today in the 21st century. And the other one, which is the nose church discipline, which is really, probably for me, if I picked one, one of the keys. Jesus, when he inaugurates the church, sets up a system for how discipline is to be handled. And some people would say it's not a system of discipline, it's a system of membership. It tells you who is in and who is not. And it tells you how to make the decision of who is in and who is not. Later, Paul in 1 Corinthians will set the same standards. He'll say, this is how what you do with people who are not acting the way that they should act. You dis—well, not dismember them. You, they're no longer a member. <laughs> Excuse me. You disinvite them from membership. Yes, you dismember them. <laughs> so let me state this one clearly. The universal church does not have a system of discipline. Right now, if I come to you and I say, in your life, you right now have an issue with sin that needs to be addressed, I don't believe that I've been given or have the authority to say, change your life in this way. I need to speak into it as a pastor would. And you, if you don't, would be asked to leave the group. Now, in our society, we would just leave anyway. If anybody even walked up to us and said, hey, I got an issue with you, would be like, who are you to talk to me? We would just go. I wouldn't need to ask for it. We wouldn't even need to go through the Matthew 18 steps. You'd be gone probably from the first step on your own. But this is a very important point because one of the key things that Jesus laid down after he announces the church is how you administer the church. And you can't do this at all in the universal church because there's no way that the local congregation can, can, can deal with its membership. Yes? Uh, one of my thoughts with the church is, because I agree with you, that's probably one of the bigger issues that's really difficult like um, but I feel like if you just had a group of Christians that like you know you're like five people who knew each other well and one of them is doing something wrong and someone addresses it with that person like you can follow the Matthew setup like except for that very last of having a pastor like which if you just have someone who's in a mentoring role to those people like or someone who's an authority not like even just like an adult or like you know, someone who's a parent or like, you know, but I feel like depending on what that role can be. And so it just seems like the whole idea of church is fun. We all think, well, it has to be in a certain format of like, ultimately it's just like people addressing it individually and addressing it in a group and then addressing someone who's a little bit higher authority and being able to say like, no, you shouldn't be a part of this group. But I feel like that could even happen as a, like, if you have five people, let's say like one person dresses it, then two people dress it, then all four would say, no, this person, you can't be in here. And they don't necessarily need a pastor. I agree with you. If all four people are the whole entirety of the group, you could. And again, I'm, what we're doing is we're, we're tumbling closer and closer to the very thing where now we're quibbling over the words. You know, by just claiming I'm part of the universal church and that's all I need to be part of, you are going it alone. If we define you, I'm part of the universal body of Christ, but I have people that I'm accountable with and they're around me, then, then I'm saying, you know what? Now we're just trying to define whether you are in a church or not, but what the question has been answered, which is, you need to be part of a church. The question is now, what is a church? What's the purpose of it? Are people meeting it? And that's why a thousand books have been written. But the point I want to make very clear, I've seen a lot of books written about the church. I've never seen a single person take the position that you do not need to be part of one. 
the only people that take that position is the generation that's leaving. And that's why I want you in the first century, not the 21st century, because I would say to you, there's probably a lot of reason for you to leave, except the one where Jesus wants us in the church, which we have to wrestle with. So we can quibble in a few moments, we will, about all the things churches are doing wrong. But the main point that we've got to start with is I can't find somebody who stands up and says, and on the basis of all the things churches are doing wrong, we shouldn't be part of a church. That's not Jesus' teaching. Yes? Um, I understand your point, and community is important, and you can meet with a group of people and so on and so forth. But, um, and I've worked through this because I was really, like, I went through a time where I was just really against over-organized religion and church because I realize now it was because of the disagreements I've had with maybe the way that it was wrong, or I just, you know, no one's perfect, so no church is going to be perfect, and, and things like that. But there is something to be said for structure and a little bit of hierarchy just to keep people accountable, especially when you're talking about molding spirituality, because any small group of people, like we'd like to say, can drink too much of their own Kool-Aid, even though a huge church can as well. And if there's no accountability, no structure, no discipleship, no strong base and where those beliefs are coming from, like that can get a little bit dangerous. And I think sometimes I even forget, like, I never stopped coming to Exodus, and I've gone through times where I've gone to Sunday morning churches and not, and so on and so forth. And even during the time where I was like, I need to step away from, quote unquote, the main church for a while and only come here. It's really ironic because during that time, Exodus existed because of a church, because people were obedient and formed a local church that looked more traditional and fulfilled all these other roles. And then there was a ministry, and that ministry became Exodus, and Exodus has changed a lot. But like a lot of beautiful things come from that structure. And I think people in a community do need a place to go and do need like accountability. Okay, Cormac. Um, I'm wondering where you would place like in Lusby, um Paul or other people who just like meet with like different groups of Christians at different times. Um, like would you say he's technically like joining a local church or? I mean, because he kind of moves around. Well, Paul is a missionary, so I don't look at Paul himself, but Paul's example is very important because Paul had the opportunity to connect every group of believers that he started with to the local church in Jerusalem. They weren't that far. It wasn't unheard of to say, you are now believers and you belong to the universal church, which is headquartered in Jerusalem. That's exactly the opposite of what he did. He said, you are now a group of believers. You're the church in Corinth. You're the church at Ephesus, if there was a, a church at Ephesus. I mean, just the Asia Minor. You're the church over here in Thessalonica. I mean, this is what he set up. So you can watch his model and say, at the very beginning, when it's very feasible to say, hey, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, who stood up and received the Holy Spirit and gave that great testament that began the whole movement, they're still alive and they're in Jerusalem. We're going to follow them. They are the church. He exactly does the opposite, where he starts breaking people up into local congregations from the beginning. But what about like him and other missionaries? Look, there are exceptions to everything. And I don't mean like Paul is exempt from the status of being a member of a church. Paul, Paul might argue, I'm a member of all of these churches. I don't know. Uh, but I would never look at somebody who's a missionary who's doing what Paul is doing, which is planting churches, as an example of somebody who goes, ah, you see, you don't have to be part of a church. I mean, he's the church planter. I mean, he would, he would take issue for that right away. He'd probably be the first person who'd say, hey, like, I totally believe in this, right? And then we'd say, well, how come you're not part of a church? You know, I mean, I don't think he would say, okay, you got me. I don't think that would happen. Did you have a comment, Jeremy? I was only really a response to Phil and just listen to his comment. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure, like, a mentor would be enough, um, only because, like, we train math teachers to be math teachers. We train doctors to be doctors. We train pastors to be pastors. Like, there's a function and a role that that that, that comes with that training. Um, so, in my view, you know, I, I think that's more than just being a mentor or being like the leader of a small group of people that goes into um, that responsibility and that job. And I think one could even make that argument using the Paul and the kind of the apostolic era uh, as that kind of like. You know, they didn't just go and start a church and leave no one there to lead that, lead that congregation. I mean, there's something that has to happen. Sure, and part of that, that one up there that says, like, the universal church doesn't have a teacher. I cite Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 specifically for a reason, because he was setting up offices. I mean, the, the best way to see it is he does not teach and serve through offices or roles or functions. 
He had set up, there's going to be pastors and teachers, there's deacons. I mean, this was not an accident that these were set up. And he says that those specially trained people who are gifted in a certain way are there to bring the whole body to maturity. Right? He can't mean the entire universal church. He's talking about the body that's there local because that pastor can only get to those people. Zach? I was just going to add to that um, and say, you know, one of the things that we used to do before the Reformation was... We considered the Pope a direct line to Peter, right? There was a spiritual lineage that gave authority to those offices beyond just the training and, and teaching. And I think in past generations, even after, well, after Protestantism broke off from Catholicism, you have ordination of pastors. And, and as part of that process, they're prayed over, they're blessed. And there's something that goes beyond just here, we're teaching you how to teach people. We're, we're making you a shepherd, or God's making you a shepherd through this blessing. And that is what gave them the authority to say, no, you can't be part of this. Like, you, you've gone outside of God's will here. Yeah, and our fractionalized system of denominations, and even non-denominations especially, has made it very difficult to do that. We lost the ability to say to somebody, you are no longer welcome in the fellowship, because they'll just cross the street, and the other church will rejoice that they got a new member. Right? We've lost that ability, and I think that was, that's, it's a sad effect to it. Ben? You were talking about, kind of all this dividing up, talking about the church in Ephesus. Is he talking about a physical group of people, or is he talking more like, you'd say, like the church in Los Angeles, maybe it's kind of the universal church located in the city of Los Angeles? That's a very good question. I'm going to use that to transition, so everybody else just hang on to your question for just one second. Because really, this thing about this word ecclesia, which we translate as church in English, actually, that question relates right to it. There are some theologians, I don't know that they're in the majority, but there are quite a few of them who believe there is no such thing as a universal church. That the metaphor given even of the body of Christ was intended to be the local body, even in that context. Now, I'll tell you right now, I don't think I agree with that position. I believe that when, in Ephesians specifically, which we studied quite in detail, I believe that Paul is referring to a one unified body with Christ. So I don't take that too seriously. But here's why they say this, and this is something we should pay attention to. 115 times the word ecclesia is found in the New Testament. We translate it as church. We started translating it as church, but it's probably not the best translation. Every time we see the word church, in fact, probably only once is there a reference to a more universal church, and that's in Revelation. Of the, of the community of all the believers appearing before the Lord. But all the other times you see the word church, if ecclesia is used, which is almost 99% of the time you're going to see that word church in your, in your New Testament, it actually refers, it's better translation, as a local congregation, a local assembly. Now, it isn't just the Christians that thought of this, because the word was in use before it was used by the New Testament writers. It's used in a secular sense to mean a town council, a local group body that was making decisions in the electorate. So this word was known in the Greek language. They didn't just say, hey, we need a word for church. Let's make ecclesia. It was what was already used to describe local groupings of people who were geographically in the same place. So if you're reading in English and it says something about church and you're wondering, is it the universal church? Is it the local church? The best argument from the language is, it was meant to be the local assembly, the local congregation. Now, go back to Ben's question for a moment. Does it mean like this specific people that I have in mind, or does it mean that church in Los Angeles, for example, the believers that are gathered there? And I think based on ecclesia and its meaning, it's closer to that wording, like those people who would gather in that place. Because when you use it in a secular context, in a non-ecclesiastical context, what you're saying is, there was supposed to be people who would either vote or make decisions or they would meet together. And they weren't defined. They were just the people who would gather there geographically. It's a subset. So that brings us to that point where I would say, based on this and based on all the things you cannot do that seem to be the commands, I think that the conclusion is, I say this very carefully, because telling your generation you have to do anything is like going to have the opposite effect, right? So... <laughs> I'd invite you to consider <laughs> the possibilities that church membership, and I'm not even talking about like be, going through a membership class, 
<laughs> Maybe too much commitment to an institution. Being a Christian was very much intended to be expressed in the context of a local church. Again, I can't find a book that concludes that we're not supposed to be part of a local church. I find lots of books that tell us what we're doing wrong in church and why people don't like the church, but nobody has come to the conclusion that we shouldn't be part of a church. And that is what I think the conclusion is, that that is something that Jesus very much expected when he was talking about the church, Paul very much expected when he planted them all and didn't connect them together in that way. That's the conclusion that I come to. I think Jesus inaugurated the church, and I'm, I put an asterisk and a big C, because I think he actually inaugurated the church being the universal church. When he says that upon this rock I build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, I think he's talking about this church. He chooses to demonstrate his power and wisdom, as we saw in Ephesians. We walk through it in Ephesians 3.10, through the church. And again, I believe that he is talking about through the entirety of the church. The church is the body of Christ in the world, Ephesians 1.23. Again, I believe that's the entire church, is one united body in Christ with him as the head. I will pause here to note that one author noted it's ironic how much institutional skepticism there is these days by young people towards the only institution that Jesus appears to have inaugurated. This is it. I mean, as far as institutions go, this is the one that he put, he didn't endorse a government or a form of anything, but he did say how people should be organized as disciples. So I'll just point that out. But that's why I put up four and five. The expressions of the church, big C, really can only take place, not all of them, but many of them. And I would say probably the most important one can only be done in the context of the local church. And you see that from Paul's example again. He focused almost entirely on local churches. And there are those people who say he never even meant to say that there was a universal church. For example, their argument would be, Paul says that when one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Well, there are members of the body hurting in all sorts of countries and I'm not hurting. So it's, it, he can't be talking about that. Now, I said that example, but I don't know that I totally buy it. There's a part of me that thinks I should be hurting. I should be unified with people I don't know. I believe that God's vision for what will be accomplished in Christ is completely to unify all things under him. And that to me sounds like a universal church. So I don't go as far as those people go. I just want to tell you that the argument is strong enough that it at least takes off the table that we can't be part of a local church. So here is Hebrews 10 one more time. Let us consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's just a closing admonition that comes. All right. I've been looking at church books. Morgan looked at this list, and I added a few more. I went to the Fuller Bookstore the other day just to walk around and read all the books that had just blank church in them somehow. And these are some of them. Morgan found some simple church, organic church, purpose-driven church, total church, externally focused church, missional church, emerging church, essential church, house church, the multiplying church, the strategically small church, which could be us. <laughs> um, the zombie church was, I had to read the back cover of that. Like I wanted to find out what the zombie, somebody wrote it, the zombie church, which is of course, as you might say, it's one of those churches just like walking dead, of course. Yeah, it's great. That's what it's about. Okay. We're about to now go into discussion of the church, but I want to be careful because our, our acceptance of Christ's inauguration of it and Paul's endorsement of it and commandments about it should never be based on how we feel about what the church is doing. That's why I wanted to stay in the first century. Now we can fast forward 2,000 years and come into the 21st century where the church is losing most of you and we can talk about why. But those are two separate questions and I think last week we were trying to deal with them together. We have to separate them. Like, are we supposed to be part of the ecclesia? Yes. Is that a local body? Yes. Is it working? Well, you'll tell me. What's your evaluation of the church? Yes. I think by and large it is way too clean and way too safe and way too based on not caring for the undesirables around mm -hmm. us. Okay. Right. I have a hard time with preachers who I feel like are bad rabbis, bad teachers who give more of their opinion than here's the word, let's study it and see what it has to say. I really, we had a pastor in high school who all he did was present his agenda to us, very rarely referencing back to scripture, which I found very disturbing. I think that's okay. Heather? I feel like Joel Osteen is the perfect 
spokesperson for the American church, not in a good way, but in the fact that he's very surface, very let's all feel happy, and I feel like that's what the American church is about. Okay. Joseph. I think a lot of churches um, overemphasize numbers for the purpose of money and staying open instead of for the actual reaching of people. Okay. Jolene? I noticed a trend, and back when I was interning at a church, I noticed a trend of the gimmick. It's like, okay, what's the catchphrase of the week? Everyone get on the internet. I want you to find the perfect catchphrase. I want some pics for it, you know, something a little saucy. I want to draw attention. And it was always very much, how can we draw people? And it's like, oh, but we've got 250 college students coming to our church, so we must be doing something right. It was a seeker-friendly catchphrase, gimmicky type of... I think what you just said is important because Joseph brought up the point about getting numbers just for money, but there are ministries that just want to be big even though there's no money. Because everybody knows there's no money in college ministry. I was sitting next to a college student today who put 50 cents in the offering thing. I was like, hey, that's an improvement, you know, 50 cents. (laughs) But what that points out is that there are reasons other than just money that people want to have big numbers and we should figure out what that is. Like, is it just to feel like you're making an impact? Is it boasting rights? Megan? My pastor at home, is, it's funny, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine today and I was like talking about like my testimony or something and I kept like talking about my pastor and how much I felt like my life had been shaped because he had invested in me and he had just like shown Christ's love and so kind of like hearing and thinking about my view of the church, I, I feel like honestly I haven't treated the church all that well, like I don't really regularly go anywhere now, but I've been really encouraged by just some very bright spots in my interactions at the church. So times where like like my pastor or people who have just come up and asked to pray for me or have said like, I wanna give you this word and it, it like completely kind of fit where I was at. And so like, I don't know, I don't know if I just haven't reached the point of being totally jaded, but I hope I don't get there. Cause I've seen just some, some very like beautiful, small, simple, like humble acts um, through church that I don't know, that give me hope that there's still goodness in the midst of all the sin and the humanity. Can I come back? Yeah. So if you've seen the beauty in that, why are you not engaged? I mean, you've seen the, the beauty of the church, and it's actually done something in your life. So then there's an even greater question on the floor, which is then why do you have so much difficulty committing and engaging to a church? I wouldn't, I don't, well, I don't think I have so much difficulty committing to a church. I think I, I haven't, like, taken the plunge, I guess. Um, I hope that I do, because I think that, kind of to Phil's point too, I think like even at the peak of Exodus, like the best that we do in Exodus and the most community we have, I still feel like there's a little something missing. And I, I think that that's at the church and I hope to find it. Um, some of you, what's changing right now is my mindset a little bit because I wanted like the first church of making Megan feel like a really cool 25 year old Christian. And so I was kind of looking for like this type of worship and community and yada yada. And I think someone talked to me about the, the importance of not being like consumer driven when you're going to church so not just looking for what you can get and Christianity being about like what you become but also like where you can just learn and love and kind of not having it be all about me so I, I think that has been maybe more influential in, in me like evaluating churches yeah I'm glad you say that because one of the things I'm shocked by in consumerist um, mentality which is pervasive in 20s right I mean I was there myself is that we look for churches that meet our needs. And so we end up going to churches that are so big we have nowhere to serve because that's where everybody's needs are being met. The funny thing is, I would, if I were to do it over again, I would find probably one of the worst performing churches I could find because that's going to be the place where I can give the most. That's the place where it's needed the most. But we always feel somehow that like, well, you know, my spiritual chips are special. I can only invest them in a certain place. And it better be just, just flying off the handle good as opposed to like, I've actually been given all these gifts. Where can I put them to use? Where do they need me the most? Put me in, coach. Monique? Kind of along the same lines, but well, one of the big issues I have with church, too, is if we all believe the same thing, you get a lot of this competition where one church, our church does it right, and your church doesn't do it right, and even our churches aren't really talking to each other or just taking members from each other instead of, like, growing numbers. But on that same, like, kind of topic, just to kind of go off what was just said, we also approach ch- churches that way like we shop for churches like which one is the good church the right church and like you're talking about meeting my needs but or the person's needs but not just in invest- investing my special whatever chips or whatever but it is about which church is going to feed me which church is going to give me like that's going to teach me like the right way and that i'm going to feel good at and that like i fit in and whatever and 
And I'm guilty of this too, because I'm looking for a church that I feel I can connect with, but really at some point it's like, when do you look at yourself and say, no, it's me, because honestly I should be able to, and I feel like I probably could, so I should just make a commitment. Go into any body of believers, any building, and if I'm with Christ and I have something to give and I can serve, then I should feel okay there. And I understand that like you need to feel comfortable with where you're at, and there's different types of worship, et cetera, et cetera, but like, we can't shop for church like we shop for a car or like the perfect outfit for whatever. I mean, that's not really the way it should work. Okay, Cormac? I was gonna say, I think the two biggest problems that I see right now with the church in America is that it's not, um, it's not connected um, and it's not utilizing its gifts, the gifts of the people in it. Okay, going this way. Philip? said pastors like not being good teachers basically but I didn't say like first the idea that pastors and teachers are combined I think is a problem because uh, like Jeremy even brought up earlier the idea of like pastors being trained like most pastors are terrible pastors like they might be adequate teachers maybe but they're terrible pastors and I think that leads into one of the bigger things it's like churches aren't loving to each other like at all like they're judgmental like on average again not, not every individual person but like and I know it's huge differences between the size of churches too but like you can go even in small churches and be hurting beyond belief and even express that to people and get nothing and like or get judged like you know and so it's and I think a lot of that I don't want to put that all in like a pastor's position like because obviously that's the people in the church as well but like I think a large part of that is because of pastor and teacher's roles are combined and they should not be at all. You've made a very wise statement that it's also the people. So let me point this out. One of the consequences of a consumerist group of people going to churches is that we have now, to capture them, we've had to hire celebrity teacher types, celebrity talking heads who are not pastors anymore. And this is not just at mega churches. This is even at small churches that are trying to grow. Your primary emphasis is on how engaging you are, whether you're a stand-up comedy pastor, whether you're one of those intense pastors, whatever type of pastor you are, your focus is on the teaching. You mentioned the word pastoring, which literally means to shepherd people, right? And there are critiques coming out right now, some of them very well stated, including by Eugene Peterson, who's just written a book called The Pastor, looking at just the whole what's happened to the pastor and his own reflections on his own life. Some of those things are like, Many pastors never visit anyone in the hospital anymore. Many pastors do not do any counseling appointments of any kind that you were mentioning too. Many pastors don't have time for anything but preparing this like show for Sunday that they've got to perform to. But part of the reason they got to do that is because all of us are going there and if the show isn't good enough, we're walking out the door because we expect so much, right? And there's 500 other churches within five miles one way or another. Ben? Um, actually, can I go off of that? I think one of the things I've noticed in churches and big churches and small churches alike is it seems like the pastors um, have a kind of a set sermon. And so they're talking this way, and their congregation may be able to kind of glean some of the content, but the sermon itself doesn't seem to be directed at the needs of the congregation. Um, it's, you know, a lot of times I've even heard the same sermons from different pastors. And it didn't seem like it related to where the actual congregation was. I feel like that's something that I'm kind of missing. Okay. Two last comments, Jeremy and then Joseph. One of the big problems with the church today is we're really behind always. It's like like Microsoft being behind Apple. You know, when <laughs> Apple does the USB mouse and, and Microsoft caught up, you know. And then FireWire, Microsoft caught up. And, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but I often feel like, and we did a series on this a little bit about showing where Christians are not people of influence. I see that as a major issue because the church is not a place that people look to for leadership. And it's always a place that seems to be stuck in about like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Um, it's stuck. In, in a different scientific model, it's stuck in it. It's just, it's just, and 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 the flip side of that, it's really hard to engage all of that, um, and still be a person of faith sometimes, and, and that causes a lot of stress when you're when you're trying to deal with the reality of of like all the things that are going on in our world. Um, we don't often have a clear vision of what our role even is. Um, so, and I think like on a bigger level, we just lack really clear 
purpose, not not in terms of the sacraments and it, like the religious life of the church, I think is different. But um, when when this generation looks at what the problems are, I think it's like I have so much information about everything else. Like why the hell does this church thing matter? Okay, Joseph. I think given your point of um, if the church tries to discipline someone, they leave. I think the church has pretty much just given up on attempting it because of that. And then because they don't even attempt that, the people in the church run amok. You get all kinds of politicking, other things, and they put themselves first instead of the church or Christ or God. Yeah, I told you we did a Matthew 18 thing with somebody in our church who asked for the intervention of the elders, asked for the intervention of the church. We went through the whole thing. And after we were done and concluded that they were still in sin and refused to listen to what they were being told, by the elders, by the church, by everyone, they just went and became the worship leader of another church. I mean, it's just like, how is that possible? Right? I mean, this is exactly the purpose. Let me tell you some things that George Barna said about eight years ago. He said, these are the challenges for American Christians. I want you to hear some of them were the ones you said. Worship is stale. The same old, same old. Well, we seem to be like 20 years behind even in worship. Right? I know we're just getting ready to do heavy metal ballad worship right now, you know? Two, he said evangelicals are watering down their theological beliefs. Just because if you get hard, if you get tough on people, they don't understand they're going to leave. They don't want to think. They just want to feel good. Three, he said evangelical congregations are split demographically into all white, all black, or all Hispanic churches, and I would add, and all Asian. We have a hard time integrating. Four, he said that many Christians, especially younger ones, don't take the Bible seriously, especially on issues as divorce and premarital sex. It's like, you know, I don't know what to make of the Bible, but for sure on that area, I'm just going to do what I want. Five, Christianity in America doesn't cost anything. That's very prophetic. Especially the way we sell it. He's not saying that that's the life of Christ should be that way, not the life of a disciple. He's just saying that's the way we sell it. Six, any expression of the supernatural has been excised from Sunday worship. It's been excised from the church in total, I would add. I mean, I don't know where... I mean, how often, maybe once a year, have a healing service? Does anybody actually expect anything to happen? Then just get some prayer? Seven, no one is ready for the fact that Gen Y Christians are going to radically reinvent the church. Okay, we'll see. That's if any of you go. <laughs> Eight, U.S. churches tend to compete rather than cooperate. Oh, I love this one. And you guys have already said it. This is so true, it drives me nuts to the point that I just never want to go back to church. This is the one that just would drive me out. The fact that when pastors meet together, they can't even look at each other. It's like when you go to a ball and you're wearing the same gown as somebody else and you just can't look at them. Or for guys, if you want to understand, when you're driving the same car as somebody and you pull up to the light, you know, and you just can't look at them. That's exactly what I notice pastors doing when you gather them together. It's almost like they all know what kind of dirty tricks they're doing to steal each other's congregants, so they just can't look at each other. Or everybody's going to go, I know exactly what you're doing at that church, trying to grow it. Right? It's weird, but it's so true. This one drives me nuts. Nine, there's a dearth of good leaders. Those who fill America's pulpits are teachers, not leaders. And I would add in affirmation of what Philip's saying, they're not pastors. There is a difference between teaching and preaching. Because somebody who preaches is going to exhort and is going to also pastor you and make sure and follow up and disciple as opposed to just give you information that might inspire you but very quickly dissipates. If you'll indulge me just two more minutes, I'm going to read you this part of a book I've been reading that I just thought really might capture where you're at. Maybe you resonate with this and next week we're going to come back and talk about it. So you can think about it this week. This is from the book Quitting Church by Julia Dewin. She's actually a religion writer for the Washington Times. She's a religion editor. She's been in a lot of churches. She's a believer. Um, she's somebody who's left church a number of times. Here's what she writes. Many people I encountered were disappointed or perplexed in some ways with God. They'd been Christians for more than a decade and some had experienced serious suffering. The more honest ones admitted something was not working in their Christian faith. They were not connecting with God as to the reason for their sorrows. In fact, God seemed to be confounding their prayers. Their churches were useless in giving meaningful counsel. And if these people brought up their concerns in a Bible study, their doubts and angers towards God were frowned on by others in the group. Such people needed sermons on unanswered prayers, but their pastors were giving PowerPoint presentations on attaining breakthroughs. Nothing wrong with PowerPoint, by the way. It's just that breakthrough part. <laughs> My research suggested that people are simply not being pastored. 
Often ministers are out of touch with what's happening on the ground as they are surrounded by a wall of secretaries and voicemail. Congregants have to wait up to a month for an appointment if they can get in at all. Once a week home Bible studies lack the depth and theological know-how for help with serious problems many of us face. Many churches refer people to professional counseling that costs at least $75 an hour with counselors who have no concept of a Christian worldview. I ran into demographic groups such as men and singles who've abandoned the church in large numbers because they are fed up with their needs never being addressed. Singles are the largest demographic among the unchurched. A third group, working moms, is about to join those two demographics. Many people are no longer content to waste part of their Sunday on an institution that gives them nothing. Other concerns that alienate people are church scandals, irrelevancy, and inefficient leadership model, the quenching of supernatural spiritual gifts during Sunday worship, clergy who are too controlling of passive congregants, the impersonal nature of the typical service, and the list goes on. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus' body is the church. And Ephesians tells us that he presents that body and does everything he can to love and cleanse that body to present the church. So our critique here is not of what Jesus inaugurated, nor of the church that he loves, nor of his intent for us to be part of a local church. Part of what we're doing tonight in the second part and into next week is to have your voices be added so that people can hear that he who cares so much for the church, don't we somehow owe a little bit better offering in the way that we do church? Otherwise, all of us have that much more difficulty in obeying and being obedient disciples who are part of a local church. And that's the difficulty that I think we're starting to hear back from authors like this from Barna's kind of predictions, which many of you hit on without knowing. I didn't want to present them until I heard from you. I didn't want to influence your thinking. I want to hear what you think. And it sounds like many of the things that were said hit exactly what those points were. And so in the next week, and maybe the one after that, we're going to be addressing what can we do, if anything, and maybe, if nothing else, our voices get recorded so that people can hear what is it that is keeping us from doing the very thing that Christ wants us to do just be part of a local church body. Let's pray. Lord, we tread upon sacred ground because this is your intent. This is your place. This is your body. And our membership in it is the same membership which gives us, Lord, in your universal church salvation. It gives us a place to be unified in you and in one another. But Lord, we yearn to discover what is the true purpose and to find ways to help us to get over some of those issues and help the church itself to be able to get over them as well. Lord, if it is true that people are to know you and to know who you are because of the unity of the church, this is a crucial issue for all of us because many of us are fleeing from the church as opposed to finding unity within it. Lord, help us even in these difficult conversations and shine light to remind us of your intent for us to be part of your ecclesia. Pray this in your name. Amen.